0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutzil, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. A surprising hit for the Champlain Society was the publication in 2016 of the volume edited by Pierre Anzil entitled Do What You Must, Selected Editorials from Le Devoir under Henri Bourassa, 1910-1932. This volume was a departure for the Society, Never before had it published a series of newspaper editorials. But the response was swift and positive. Our members and readers were genuinely happy to be able to read Bourassa in English and discover the wide range of interests that were on his mind. A splendid new book on Bourassa has now appeared, the first one in English in 50 years, written by Jeff Keelan. It is entitled Duty to Dissent, Henri Bourassa and the First World War, published by UBC Press. We reached Dr. Keelan at his office at Library and Archives Canada in Gatineau, Quebec. Jeff Keelan, welcome to the mic.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: I think it's fair to say that the 100th anniversary of the Great War has brought back some interest in Henri Bourassa. What's your take on his life and his work as we observe the 150th anniversary of his birth?
1: Uh, I, I think Bourassa has been under, understudied by historians, especially in English Canada, um, he had such a profound impact on Canadian politics, on Canadian culture, and how Canadians understand themselves that it's uh, it's a disservice to him that he hasn't been more studied by English Canadians uh, and even by uh, French Canadian historians as well to some respects. Uh, I, I think that this absence is, uh, I, I would say, tragic because he was one of the most passionate and eloquent and arguably consistent political commentators of early 20th century Canada and played a very large role in understanding what it meant to be Canadian when Canada was such a young nation.
0: Mm. Let's start at the beginning. Who was who this guy?
1: Uh, I think that's a very complicated question. It's uh,
0: <laughs> simple. I meant it simply, but it is deceptive, isn't it?
1: Yeah, my, my work deals a lot with the Bourassa that was presented to the public mm. through his editorials in Le Devoir. But I, I know his daughter Anne said that he was a loving father, a very attentive man, and uh, very different than the character, or at least the image that would have been presented to Canadians through the newspapers. He was, he was a man of great contradictions, and I think you can trace this back to the early influences on his life. His uh, father, Napoleon Bourassa, who was an artist, uh, a member of the uh, uh, established elite of Quebec society, um, and he would have been debating the politics of the day around the family dinner table with the young army present, so it was very much in his blood to not only know about the political happenings of the world, but to discuss them fiercely. He was the, uh, the son of Azalee Papineau, who herself was the daughter of Louis-Joseph Papineau, the famed rebel of the 1837 rebellions, but she died at an early age. So Barassa was, in fact, partially raised by his uncle, Augustin Médard, and his aunt, Zilda, who both exposed him to a world of devout Catholicism and a wide world of literary works in French and English. And I think these influences would become the building blocks of his career. From his father, he learned the importance of debate in political and cultural life. From his grandfather, Louis-Joseph, He learned that politics was an agent for change, and perhaps also that the dangers of using violent means to achieve political goals. And from his aunt and uncle, most importantly, he developed a profound Catholic faith. Uh, Bourassa was an ultramontane Catholic, which meant that he believed in the primacy of the papacy, uh, that the pope was the ultimate arbiter of human affairs in the world and this would have a incredible impact on his views of Canada and the world.
0: You I mean he really does grow up at a moment when the ascendancy of the pope and catholicism is really uh taking on a fire of its own, isn't he? He's born in 1868 for the benefit of our listeners. Uh so he's growing up in the last third of the uh the 19th century.
1: Yeah, and it's also a time when catholicism and organized religion is struggling with what to do about um social movements, what to do about Marxism, what to do hmm. about all these inequalities facing facing the faithful. And so you have the development of social Catholicism, which is this idea that Catholics have to somehow impact society. They can't just exist as a part of social hierarchy. They actually have to, you know, do better. They have to and you see the development of charities. Uh you see greater interest in an active participation in social affairs, not just political ones. And I think Barassa really takes heed of this moment and believes that he has a duty to uh, make a change in the world, make a change in his country, for that matter.
0: It's it, it parallels what our English-Canadian audience would would remember as the social gospel, doesn't it? This this movement among Catholics that there is uh, a duty. I'll come back to that word a few times today, I think. Uh, yeah. A duty to respond to... The, the difficulties of the capitalist age and to look after those people who have been uh, victims of the, of the new emerging order. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's he like personally, Henri Bourassa? What's your impression
1: of that, of him? Uh, I, I think the image that Bourassa presents through his editorials isn't exactly fair to him as a person. Mm. Uh, if you were to read his editorials, if you were to read his commentary in the House of Commons when he serves as an MP or uh, as an MPP in Quebec... He, he comes across as a very, sometimes a very angry person. He's always very passionate. He's always very fiery. He's always, there's always something that is the most important thing in the world to him. But his daughter, Anne, who helped put together a bibliography of his work with uh, Cameron Nish in the 1950s, she, she said that he was an attentive, loving parent, that at home he was nowhere near the sort of person he would have presented to the public. And uh, a very different picture of Barrasso emerges if you read sort of personal accounts of, of friendships with him.
0: The Yeah, that certainly is a contrast. It always seemed like there was something bugging him deeply. <laughs> the Now, of course, so he's elected in 1896 as part of the uh, Laurier uh, wave. Um, he's a backbencher uh, representing the area around uh, Montebello where he grew up, and this is on the— uh, on the North shore of the Ottawa river. Um, and he comes into conflict with the prime minister, the leader of his party in
1: 1899. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very turbulent couple of years when he becomes an MP. He's uh, identified early on by Laurier as a, uh, maybe not quite a potential successor, but certainly a candidate for a successor in French Canada for the liberals. And so Laurier does him a lot of favors early on. He, uh, Make sure that he's part of the, uh, the group of MPs that uh, dealt with the Manitoba school crisis, with the Alaskan boundary dispute. He even makes him the editor of the liberal paper, La Patrie, for a while. A
0: short while, a very short while.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, because <laughs> liberals soon discovered that Barasa was very unbending in his principles and couldn't quite agree with the rest of his compatriots in the party. Hmm. Uh, but these years demonstrate to Barasa that Uh, Him and Laurier do not necessarily agree on the future of French Canadians in Canada or the future of Canada and the world. And this all comes to a head in the Boer, during the Boer War of 1899, when Laurier decides that he will send a group of volunteers to fight for the British Empire in South Africa. And Bourassa cannot abide by this compromise. Because in Barassa's mind, there's no Canadian interest being represented all the way down in South Africa. So why should Canada be involved in any way? And it's a testament to the great difference between the two men that Barassa cannot simply accept this and move on. Uh, He decides that he has to resign from the Liberal Party and even go so far as to essentially begin advocating for an alternative to Laurier in Quebec, whatever that might be. Jeff,
0: he's thirty-one years old. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable what arrogance this young man had. He's going after—he's going after Wilfrid Laurier.
1: <laughs> I, I guess you could—I would des- yeah, I guess you could describe it as, as arrogance. I mean, he always aimed high. He was mayor of Montebello, Quebec, yes, by twenty-one, yes, and he moved quickly into federal politics. Uh, there's definitely an assurance of, of that what he was doing was correct. That he had to do it.
0: Indeed. He's, he certainly had a vision of French Canada and of Canada, did he not?
1: Yeah, and it was one that was unique for the time. I mean, today, like, he, he espoused a, a bicultural, bilingual Canada, an equality between its French and English peoples. And today it's very easy to forget that this was uh, iconoclastic at that time, mm. uh, especially after the 1960s in English Canada when When this that idea became far more popular and accepted in the mainstream, but for Barassa to put this forward in the early twentieth century uh, put him at odds with almost everyone else in the political sphere
0: because English Canada saw itself as the eldest daughter of the empire, it was an english country
1: yeah i I mean if you were to describe a nationalism in English Canada before the first world war i I think you would have to call it colonial nationalism or Britannic nationalism, mm. it certainly wasn't Canadian nationalism with a capital C.
0: What's his idea for Quebec? Does he see Quebec—I uh, mean, I think that's a, a point of contrast between his French-Canadian nationalism and the Québécois nationalism of today, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I made great efforts to emphasize that he was a Canadian nationalist, not, not a French-Canadian nationalist, not a Quebec nationalist— because i think it's sometimes easy to mm-hmm. mix what Barassa was thinking at that time with what came after but the quebec nationalism that mm-hmm. grew out of uh the the uh you know the thoughts and the the, the words of Abbé grew and of course eventually with rené Levesque and the parti québécois uh that maybe that's rooted in the ideas of Bourassa, but they're very, very different from it. Bourassa, for instance, never advocated separatism for the province of Quebec. Uh, he, He, in fact, I would say he tended to group all French Canadians together. He wasn't as concerned by provincial boundaries as later Quebec nationalists would be. But of course, this was all before the 1917 conscription crisis. Right. Which maybe made those ideas far more compelling.
0: But before we race to that, there's another moment, of course, and I have a personal interest in it because I've I've co-written a book on the 1911 election. But the the that trend that starts in with the Boer War in in, 19, in 1899 continues. It really over the position of Canada with regards to the Empire. Bourassa resisted the notion that Canada should be involved in imperial affairs abroad. And in 1911, his voice really stands above all else in Quebec in insisting that Wilfrid Laurier's naval project would commit Canada to more involvement in imperial affairs. And he breaks with with Laurier on that. Um, he'll create a movement against Laurier and, of course, that will contribute to defeating Laurier in, in 1911. What's your sense? I mean, I, was this a mistake on Bourassa's part, or or was it not? I mean, how do you read his position on 1911?
1: I, I, I think it's easy to say it was a mistake, knowing that it would fail. But it may have been a good bet at the time, mm. because, as, as yourself and David McKenzie argue in your book on 1911— by the, time, by the time the election is over, Borden can safely ignore any uh, conservative nationalist MP that is elected from Quebec. Uh, and so they don't have the power that Barassa believed they would. Mm. But if Borden had been dependent on those MPs to move forward with any agenda and have a sort of quasi-minority government situation, Barassa might have, in fact, made the right call there he might have been able to, or at least his, you know, the, the MPs might have been able to offer the influence that he believed was possible, which it's hard to play with alternate histories, so. though. Sure. I've always wanted to write an article on what would happen in 1914 if Laurier had still been prime minister. Yeah. And what would Canada have looked like You're not going to write that.
0: You're not going to write that.
1: <laughs> no, it's so hard to argue. <laughs> but,
0: okay, now that we're, we're at 1914 um war breaks out tell us where where is bourassa
1: yeah so after 1911 he he fails to you know get this group of mps to uh to offer some sort of quebec only view in parliament and he spends the intervening years touring the country uh trying to argue for his vision of confederation this idea of equality between french and english uh and he's despite that failure he's very hopeful he he, he seems to have this honest belief that English Canadians will listen to him, that he can reach out across the cultural boundary. Uh, and in 1914, he's in Europe, actually, uh, investigating the experience of other minorities in uh, Ireland, in Belgium. And uh, on the eve of the war in late July, he's in Alsace-Lorraine, which is at that time German-owned. Mm. And he's uh, talking to Alsatian... Uh, not separatists, but alsatian uh, supporters when they they find out the war is breaking out, and he uh, the 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 news reporter that he 's talking to says "We have to flee the country because once war uh, erupts we 'll have nowhere to go and uh, the reporter goes to France to fight against the German occupiers, <laughs> and Barassa uh, heads back home of, narrowly avoiding the borders closing, uh, spending some time in France and uh, admiring the unity of the French people in the face of a German attack. And by the time he comes home to Canada in late August of 1914, he's, I think, profoundly affected by what he's seen. His first article That he writes in Le Devoir, it's clear that he believes that the war could, in fact, unite French and English Canadians the same way it has united the French people, who were also very much divided in the years before the war. And he really believes that, as cataclysmic as the war is, uh, it's a chance for regeneration. It's a chance for, I'd say, absolution to wash away the mistakes of the past fifty so years since. Uh, 1867. And he comes out in support of the war, which is a great shock to many of his uh, Quebec supporters.
0: But it won't last long, will it?
1: No. He, like, he faces a lot of criticism for his support for the war. If you read his editorials that are being published in 1914, 1915, it's clear that he's not happy with the war. He's not happy with the way the war is being fought in Canada, with the uh, unlimited sacrifice being offered by english canadians or any war supporter but he still supports it until ostensibly until january 1916 which is a very long time to to be approving of what's going on in europe if you are uh, if you're if you're a nationalist in canada he he argues after the fact that uh, this support is actually a cover story if you will that he's He's hesitant. Uh, René Durocher uh, argues that he's hesitant to uh, go directly against the Catholic bishops of Quebec who support the war. Uh, and he's just trying to hedge his bets by making sure he's not seen as going directly against the church, but is also able to offer his criticisms of the war unimpeded. But I think in August 1914, he really, he truly does believe that something terrible is happening, but that that could come to be a great benefit for Canada because this could be the moment that forces French and English Canadians to come together. But he's very quickly disabused of that notion. He's very Absolutely. critical.
0: He's very, I mean, he grows very critical of British imperialism, doesn't he?
1: Yeah. I mean, he's always opposed to British imperialism. But for him, the fusion of British imperialism and militarism during the war, it reveals this dark aspect to it that, to him, is undermining the idea of democracy, the idea of liberalism itself, and it becomes not so much a, a political ideology that he disagrees with, it becomes a, a dark force that is uh, destroying the foundations of the country that he loves, and he calls it an imperialist revolution, mm. something that is chaotic, something that is tearing away at the order which... As a conservative Catholic, he truly respects.
0: And he sees this as destructive to Canadian unity, obviously.
1: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, all unity. He, by the final years of the war, he's arguing that every democracy involved in the war is falling apart, is giving way to autocratic tendencies. And uh, the world is, by the end of the war, he thinks that everything's coming apart.
0: I get the the impression, Jeff, that, I mean, let's put a, a human face to this. Um Boassa worked like a dog. I mean, there's no other word for it, I think. He worked like a dog through these war years, did he not? Oh yeah, uh, he's I mean, publishing books he's I mean, he's publishing editorial after editorial they there are he, he's putting out books, he's lecturing across the country. He spoke a good English, did he not?
1: Uh, yeah, he, he spoke fluent English
0: and he's working himself he's working himself really hard um and yet. And yet, what's your sense? I mean, is he being heard or not?
1: I think we have to assume he's being heard. I mean, the, the subscriber base of Le Devoir is relatively small compared to other major newspapers like The Star or La Presse. I think it's around uh, 15,000 subscribers during the war. But you have to assume that his voice is getting out there despite that because it's Bourassa who English Canadians are... Uh, talking about in his criticism of the war. It's Bourassa's whose name is plastered alongside Laurier's during the 1917 election.
0: He's demonized.
1: And I know, like, anecdotally, I've read stories where everyone in Ottawa would have been reading borassa 's articles. Mm. Um, you know, if you were involved in politics, Le Devoir was on your reading list every morning to see what he was saying. So although it was a small readership and certainly an elite readership, it was definitely read by the most important men and women in the country to try to find out, well, what was the pulse of Quebec today?
0: Let's come back to that relationship with Laurier. Uh, as you say, ni- 1899, there's a, a real cooling off over the Boer War. 1911, it's more than a cooling off. It's an absolute cold war. Um, he breaks with Laurier and the Liberals decidedly. He campaigns against Lurie, uh in 1911. But In 1917, there's another change of heart. He sees conscription on the horizon advancing rapidly. What's his position come June 1917?
1: He begins to accept that Laurier is the best of a bad lot. Mm. He's better to have Laurier than Borden, better to have the Liberals than the Conservatives or the Unionist Party as the merger between Liberals and Conservatives would be known that summer. Uh, Better to have... Laurier than anyone else. And there is a, uh, they sort of come back together in late summer of 1917, although there's not, I've not found very many sources detailing it. Uh, it's, so there's a story from uh Milly, uh, one of Barassa's biographers and also uh, Real Belanger, who more recently has been writing a uh, two volume biography of Barasa, and There's not much details about it, but it's clear that they have a meeting and that they agree that they can no longer oppose each other. So even though the war years brought some of the harshest private and public condemnation of the other, uh, conscription brings them back together because they know that, uh, I, I would say, the principles of Barassa align with the politics, the political reality of Laurier and the Liberals, which allows them to come together again in those final two years of Laurier's life.
0: Do you, and so, but he, he, he will not campaign in favor of Laurier, will he? Does he actually campaign in
1: 1917? No. He, even his editorials in late 1917 are still criticizing Laurier, mm. but he comes out and says, and, and says that Laurier is the best of a lot of bad options for French Canada and Quebec in particular. But what choice do we have? Because it's clear that Prime Minister Borden is so much worse for French Canadians, for, for Canada, and for the world, in fact, that yeah. they have to stand together if they want the Confederation to survive.
0: Looking back on Henri Bourassa and the First World War, I, I get the impression that the war broke him, that he was never quite the same. Am I am I wrong in my impression? What do you think?
1: No, I I, I think... The war represents the height of his influence in Canada. It maybe, arguably, represents the height of his uh, rhetorical prowess. But by 1919, he is a very different man than the hopeful visionary we saw enter the war in 1914. But it's matched by the death of Laurier, his old mentor, uh, the death of his wife in early 1919, and. The, the i would say the death of his vision for canada he he cannot foresee a future where french and english can come together as equals as, as equal partners by 1919 conscription and the 1917 election has torn the country apart uh, i would say the 1917 election was probably the the most bitter and the most divisive election in our history ever uh simply because both sides, uh, English-Canadian and French-Canadian, believe that the other is a traitor to the to nation, effectively, that they've, they've uh, betrayed some great value that they fundamentally believe in. And for Barassa to see this, to see these two people so far apart, he realizes that the, his dream of the country can never come to pass. And although he's still active in politics after the war, uh, he's very much removed from the role he had played in the early 20th century.
0: You make a good point. Um, 1919, he's 50 years old. He's 51 years old when the war ends. Um, He will continue. I mean, he stays at the helm of the Le Devoir. Um, He, as you said earlier, he will will come back to federal politics, won't he?
1: Yeah, he he rejoins the House of Commons in the 1930s, but he's, uh, I think he looked on, uh, I don't want to say with, pity, but certainly as a relic of a bygone age by that point. I mean, he stands up in the House of Commons in 1935 and says, I've never owned a radio and I will never listen to one. <laughs> I mean, his time has clearly passed. But that says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: I mean, Henri Bourassa was a conservative, I mean, a social conservative.
1: Absolutely. He, uh, I mean, he campaigns against the right for women to vote. Right. Even during the war itself, he believes it's a mistake.
0: Right. What do you think at the end, Jeff Keelan? What do you think at the end? What did, what did Henri Bourassa contribute? Do you think to Canadian political life?
1: I think we have to we have to acknowledge Bourassa's impact on both French and English Canadian memories of the war. I should say Quebec memory of the war because it truly becomes more about a Quebec focus uh, after the First World War because for. So the Quebecois, he's clearly a grandfather to uh, separatist thought, to Quebec nationalism. He's not the main mover after the war, but you can see his influence. And of course, that would have a profound impact on Canadian political history to this day. But for English Canadians, although I disagree with their assessment of him, they, they portray him as a domestic dissenter. And I try to argue in the book that he has a much more worldly view than we give him credit for. But to English Canadians, he becomes this, um, this opponent to the war, this, this icon of, of what English Canadian nationalism is not, at least in its immediate aftermath. But even that doesn't quite survive the passage of history. I mean, he becomes, he's again revered as this forefather of biculturalism and bilingualism in the 1960s. Yes. And we've left him at that. So you can see his influence on uh, both sides of the of the two solitudes, let's say, uh, and you can you can see his influence on the Liberal Party on the ideas of Mackenzie King and the way the Liberal Party would uh, evolve over the course of the twentieth century.
0: That's what's remarkable, isn't it? That even though he is defeated politically or ideologically in the thirties and forties, I mean, there is tremendous vibrancy to his views through the Liberal Party.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you can see the Liberals understand that he was correct mm. uh, after the death of Laurie and the rise of King. Uh, and even the Conservatives understand that he was correct in the sense that they had committed political suicide in the province of Quebec for several decades after the war. I, I think that has to do partially with Something that is, was misunderstood about Barassa by his contemporaries, particularly Laurier and Borden, who were political creatures, they were, they were always thinking about the political edge, the political angle, which rightfully so. They were trying to win elections for their parties, but Barassa had no such restrictions. He was an agent of politics, but very much immersed in the debate and the discourse of ideas and his, his beliefs about the country. And so while well, political actors often find what they believed at the time to go out of fashion, I think Barras's ideas have a longevity that surpassed the ideas that he would have come up against.
0: I have to ask you in closing um, about your sources, the, the, our, our famous Champlain Society questions. What about your sources? Um, are you satisfied with what you had to work with?
1: I, I had to make some difficult choices about sources for my book because— it was, it was work for my PhD, so I couldn't read everything. And so I, I chose to focus primarily on his editorials. Uh, I really wanted to examine and uh, expose this public set of ideas that Barassa was dispensing. And so I did so ignoring a lot of, uh, let's say, archival sources because I, I had to focus on just what he was presenting to the public. Uh, what a Canadian reading his words would have known at that time and would have received from those words. So I I use Le Devoir almost uh, predominantly throughout the work.
0: Are his papers, I mean, his papers are available. He did have a private, uh, there is a private font of uh, Henri Bourassa papers.
1: Yeah, there's a font at Library and Archives Canada, which is uh, not, I would say, not fully complete. And I I know there's more archival records in the uh, Quebec archives, but I've only, I touched those, Very, very lightly. In
0: terms of Henri Bourassa's life, um, really the core reading has been that biography. You mentioned it at the outset. Um, The Robert Rumilly biography of Henri Bourassa was published shortly before or after
1: his death. I think right after his death, 1953.
0: I get the impression that Rumilly used Bourassa as his source for much of that biography.
1: Yes, it was... uh... It was a result of uh, interviews and conversations with Barassa and others.
0: It's a uh, very favorable. Really comes
1: through yeah, it's work. a very
0: favorable biography.
1: Yeah, I describe it as hagiographic. Yeah, in, in my book.
0: Yeah, I think that there's this is something about uh, Robert Rumilly's life that uh, needs to be explored. There has been uh, a few studies of Rumilly, but the way he was able to exploit, take full advantage of that generation of elderly men—I have to say it's men because it was mostly men. Of elderly men who survived into the twenties and thirties when Rumidi a young French journalist, um, quite literally infiltrates the uh the Quebec intelligentsia and and gravitates around these people and and will use them and their memories to write much of his history of quebec
1: yeah, and I think it 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 comes through in the history that it's very much this sort of uh conversational yes. uh, uh, infiltration, as you say, maybe, uh, where he's almost reflecting what they've told him back to the reader. There's very, there's a, there's not much inquiry. It's just laying the facts out as he has heard them.
0: Yeah. it's. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've come, I have to say, I, I've come around to Rumi Lee when I was a young younger historian. I'm still a young historian. But when I was a younger historian, I was deeply suspicious of Rumilly and as I've uh, as I've grown and I've seen uh what's available in terms of raw material for historians I've come to appreciate his work not so much as history but as a collection of the views of the people he he interviewed and I think that there's value to that um even though he's very careful to hide that and and, and you know there's never any notes or um, you know uh, attribution for 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 the many quotes and facts that he comes up with, um, but there's something to Rumiely's work that I think is important to reflect on as we reflect on Henri Bourassa and and his importance, especially uh, during the, the Great War.
1: Yeah, and I I have to mention at this point that Rayel Belanger has written uh, one volume of a new biography on Henri Bourassa in French, and the second volume is coming out at some point, I assume, and. It is, without a doubt, the, the, the greatest work on Barassa to date and uh, far exceeds mine in detail and scope. And it is a worthy successor to Rumeli's biography, without a doubt.
0: We can only hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff Keelan, for this interview on Henri Bourassa.
1: It's been great to talk to you.
0: That was Jeff Keelan, the author of Duty to Dissent, Henri Bourassa and the First World War, published by the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on October 28, 2019, and it was produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody.
1: We'll see you next time.